land matters a lot. It's very similar now that it gets at that A to AD access. You know, land is the most survivable domain. And that was key because our soldiers came up with incredible ideas. The best ideas come from the cutting edge, uh, not from the generals, but from the cutting edge because they're the ones closest, to, they're in harm's way. Failure is critical to success. And I would say failure is a key part of resilience. You, you must fail and work through it and fight through it. And then you become more resilient and you build that in the unit, in the individual. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're talking with General Robert Brown, U.S. Army Retired. After almost 40 years of service, General Brown is now the President and CEO of the Association of the United States Army, or AUSA. He'll be talking with us today about reaching the next generation of Americans, the creation of the multi-domain task forces, challenges in the Pacific AOR, and the importance of the human dimension. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. So thank you for joining us, sir. No, it's my honor to be here, and uh, thanks for having me. I love the name of your podcast, uh, Key to the Future, no doubt about it. So uh, really happy to be here. Absolutely, sir. We're, we're all about convergence here. So, sir, you've had an incredible career with almost four decades of service in the U.S. Army, and now you're the president and CEO of an organization that a lot of people listening to this podcast will know well, uh, Association of the United States Army, or AUSA. And AUSA, like many prominent nonprofit organizations that are associated with the different U.S. military services and national security that lead thought and discussion in those areas, they're having to continually evolve to engage with changing uniform service and veteran demographics. The, the populations are changing. So how is AUSA adapting itself for outreach to those younger generations and varying audiences? Yeah, great question. And you're absolutely right. Uh, you've got to adjust. Really, what I find is uh, a lot of soldiers, and I would really classify anybody about 40 years old and younger, they say, you know, you're a nonprofit. What do you do for me? Just because you're, you know, 73 years we've been the Army's association, uh, done a ton, but it doesn't matter. What what have you done for me? So you're absolutely right. So I'm really proud. We've adjusted. We, you know, our, our mission is to educate, inform, and connect, and educate within the Army. And we've given just in the last few months probably about 5,000 junior leaders uh, leadership classes. We have leadership fellows. We've been out at the divisions. We've been out, and by the way, it's uh, active guard and reserve, total Army. So we're out there doing uh, things for them, professional development, leadership development, helping families and soldiers in a whole bunch of ways, everything from helping with food insecurity to other issues. But really, uh, the thing that excites me the most is the educate part. And we leverage, we have 122 chapters across the country. Everywhere the Army is, we have a chapter. And these are amazing volunteers, some 10,000 volunteers. And by the way, we have chapters in Europe and the Pacific as well. They do everything they can for the soldier and their family. And one of the big things we do that I love the Army and uh, you know, nearly four decades in the Army, uh, it's an incredible Army, the best Army in the world. But a couple things the Army doesn't do real well. One is connect with the community. And it, they're busy. 
you know, and now since 911, we're in these uh, fortified bases. You have to have security. It's not as easy to connect with the community. Uh, that's one of the things we do extremely well at AUSA. We have community connectors and community partners. And so we do a ton of connecting with the community, uh, just showing the community who the Army is. And it's critical, you know, as we've kind of, as you look at all the recruiting and all the statistics, it's become kind of a family business. So fewer and fewer of uh, those outside the military and the Army uh, know what the Army does. The other thing we do real well is tell the Army story. It's just the way the Army is, uh, our culture is do a tough job, don't brag about it, move on to the next tough job. Uh, but you got to tell people what you're doing or, or they don't know. And, uh, and, and so, and, but again, folks get busy. They're worried about the next mission. It's just not in the culture. But we help tell that story. Everything from monthly, we produce Army Magazine to podcasts, articles, you name it. And again, getting out there in the, the public forums and telling what the Army does, so connecting the Army that way. So I'd say that's the, the real uh, key thing. The other thing we've done to adjust, uh, we created a basic membership that's no cost. So it's free. Soldier can join, learn what AUSA does. You see it, you like it, wonderful. We can, you know, they, they all the benefits of being a member. They get even more if they if they join. Uh, we have premium memberships, are fairly inexpensive, but they get even more benefits. But show them at no cost, and this has really helped a ton. We've gone out and given you know, the Audie Murphy Club at a base. They all get memberships. Brand new soldiers just joining the army, join your association, no cost. So that's helped a ton too. We're approaching. Uh, started this year at 200,000 members. We're going to hit a million in a, in a month, one million members wow. at AUSA. So uh, that's, uh, that's how we've changed, again, to adapt to those varying audiences, as you mentioned. What have you done for me? And we're doing everything we can in a ton. I think that's a really important point, sir, especially about the divide uh, between the civilian population um, that, as General Milley had said in the past, we are an army of and for the people. Yeah. And so to get exactly. that connection again and, and bridge that gap in the civil-military divide. Yeah. And I think it's it's worth noting as well, uh, Matt and I actually have both attended in the past AUSA's uh, Robotics and Autonomy mm. Conference um, and really seen AUSA um, not only as a connector for communities and helping soldiers in those kind of family independent ways as well but AUSA has really been a thought leader as well yeah. where um, you know with the annual event people waiting to see what's announced there and what what drives then uh, some of the strategic thinking that's a great point I didn't even mention that because a lot of people think uh, AUSA is all about the annual meeting and the annual meeting is important because it it really is an incredible forum an educational forum tremendous topics uh, mad scientist type topics you know and uh, uh, a lot of involvement there in some symposiums and stuff, as you mentioned, but then also connecting industry uh, with and, and letting industry know. And there's nothing like the networking that goes on. Uh, I used to say, you know, I'd, I'd be at AUSA and it would take me about two years to travel around and see all these uh, uh, young businesses and established defense companies and what they can do for us. And, of course, uh, we need that to make sure our soldiers have the best equipment in the world. And there's no doubt about it. We need industry. They're key. You know, we can't do it without them. So a great point. I didn't even mention that because it's what everybody usually thinks of, but I should mention it. So you're absolutely right. Sir, thanks so much for being here. I want to yeah. talk to you about the Pacific a little bit. So you were the commanding general for U.S. Army's Pacific for, for three and a half years before you retired from the Army. 
We've seen what an incredibly important AOR that is, especially in recent times, not only to the Army and the wider DOD, but to the whole nation and the world. So what changes did you notice most from our pacing threat, China, in your time as the CG and USERPAC, and since that time, and what implications do you think those have for the current and future forces? Oh, well, well, thanks, Matt. Uh, great question. And uh, I, I got uh, early on in my career, I was uh, assigned in the Pacific as a captain, and then by good luck just kept going back there. And it was kind of a, you know, a theater people didn't think about a lot. It was really, it was Europe, was the focus. Uh, and and so uh, I had about 17 years in the Pacific, became kind of a Pacific expert, but I had 30-plus years dealing with China and visiting China. And uh, my last visit was in 2019 and, and went quite a few times. And I will tell you, you know, it's interesting. The Chinese people are wonderful people. They're just, uh, you know, a lot uh, like us, that when you go to the cities and they they love the United States, but the Chinese Communist Party, a whole different ball game there. I tell you, they are uh, more aggressive than I have ever seen in 30 plus years. And to a point where even in my three, three and a half years at uh, U.S. Army Pacific, to levels that are dangerous. And that's what worries me. We could have an accidental conflict because I would equate like when I used to visit China even five years ago. They would hide their really uh, good equipment and everything. They'd show us only old stuff. We'd always push to see new stuff. It was always a fight. They weren't transparent at all. Now, the last visit I made, they actually bragged and showed us their newest equipment. And, and I would equate it to, since this is March, we're uh, recording this in March, March Madness is going on. It's like a really good high school team thinking they can go win the NCAA championships in March Madness, you know. And so they're overconfident, and but they're aggressive as can be. And so it really worries me, uh, most aggressive ever by far. And they're doing aggressive things. I mean, just look at South China Sea and, and their, their long-term strategy strategy, which they lay right out there, is, is really to uh, they, they, for China would be extremely happy if the United States wasn't even in the Pacific. And of course, we've been a Pacific nation for uh, several hundred years. And they go back to Thailand, five of our seven treaties and alliances in the world are in the Pacific with you know, Thailand, Korea, Japan, Australia, and the Philippines. And they've been around a long time. And it's kind of ironic because when you look the free and open Indo-Pacific since World War II and the rules-based international order, no one has benefited more than China in that. That's why they're benefiting so much economically. But now that they benefited that much, they don't want it to be a free, uh, you know, op- open and fair. They want the advantage and they want it, uh, the advantage swayed their direction. And so the CCP is extremely aggressive and it, it does worry me. of an accidental conflict in this uh, and aggressive to the point of, again, this uh, working with Russia more than ever. Uh, that's a big, big concern. No, I think that's an important point, sir. And we've seen a U.S. response to that aggression in terms of things like decoupling or um, reshoring of capabilities uh, through the CHIPS Act, through getting to a point where we can have capabilities uh, that are not reliant on uh, China for supply chains and things of that nature, but also seeing further posturing in the Pacific to deter uh, and be able to respond in case of that crisis or conflict. And I think a big part of that is the multi-domain task forces. And, sir, you were instrumental in the creation of the multi-domain task forces, or MDTFs, that are now prominent in U.S. plans and strategy for shaping and setting conditions, not only for that theater, but, but globally. What brought about the idea and creation of the MDTFs, and what role and importance do you see for them in indo pacific 
Paycom going forward. And then do the MTTFs also have a model that works not only there, but in other theaters as well? Yeah, well, I could spend hours on the multi-domain task force. It's a tremendous example of innovation, which I know you guys are all about. Uh, you know, I was fortunate uh, in, in my career, kind of a strange career. I, I went from the institutional side, like commanding the Maneuver Center at uh, Fort Benning, soon to be Fort Moore, uh, to uh, uh, First Corps and being the operational side and being in the Pacific, doing the rebounds of the Pacific, then back to the institutional side, a combined arms center. So I got to work the future and what the future uh, fight might look like. And so when I got to the Pacific, I saw nobody in the Pacific can do their job without uh, multi-domain operations. Well, you know, uh, joint world would call it all domain. But the reality is, you know, the uh, A2AD, uh, anti-access aerial denial China has now, can keep aircraft carriers, aircraft uh, and our forces well away. We're talking 4,000 kilometers minimum and actually more and growing every day. They can kill an aircraft carrier from a long ways away now. And they've done this on purpose. And I'm sure you've seen the maps where it shows this. So we looked at this. This is a real problem. Uh, the, the whole Pacific Command, how do you deal with this changing China and very aggressive, as we were just talking about earlier? And what we realized is uh, in the multi-domain operations, first of all, it's a joint fight in the Pacific. Every domain matters. Land matters a lot. Uh, if we look back to history of the Pacific, why did land matter in World War II? Well, it enabled us to get closer to bomb Japan. Couldn't do it unless you could refuel and get the aircraft closer. Land mattered, the island campaign, everything else. It's very similar now that you know land matters because uh, it, it gets at that A2AD access. You, you know, land is the most survivable domain. You can hide on land. That's why land, we have land conflicts that last a long time because you can hide in jungles, cities. Uh, you, you can blend right in with the people. You can, you know, there's all kinds of uh, ways on land. So land is percent. So when you look at the multi-domain task force came about, we needed a small maneuver force that could get inside that A to AD, inside that first island chain, persistently be there. You can fly over it. You can sail by it. You can't do a lot when you do that. It's good. I like, you know, I'm not saying it's bad. I like that. But you need somebody persistently there because the reality is there are doors open and opportunities during competition. And we're in competition every single day that may close during crisis and certainly will close during conflict. So you need to be there and you have to have capability in all domains, air, sea, land, space, cyber. Uh, and so within those domains, and so the multi-domain task forces, we were developing it, we realized long-range precision fires are a key part of it. And we realized we needed the ability from land to kill ships at sea. You know, if you are positioned on islands properly, there's some straits in the Pacific and key areas you can deny access to from land, which frees up our uh, naval forces for lots of other things. And so uh, we started to realize these things and we're developing it. And I think it's uh, probably in the history of the Army from concept, just an idea and a concept to actual formation on the ground was 18 months. Pretty amazing. And now we see capabilities like hypersonic uh, missiles uh, coming uh, just a, a short time after that. And so you, you developed and we, we knew that uh, it would be incredibly useful 
to have a persistent uh, element there in competition that was survivable had to be a maneuver formation. Folks at first wanted to make it a fires formation. And again, long-range precision fires are a key part of it, but it also needs maneuverability, uh, force protection. Uh, It needs other, it it essentially what we found when we went through numerous uh, war games, exercises, is that uh, it was an incredible capability that could, uh, was something that hadn't been planned on by an adversary of any type at all. They didn't think of that inside their A2, AD bubble, and it's causing a major, major problems. Is it wor- uh, worthwhile in other theaters? Absolutely. I will tell you it has application everywhere. Uh, not exactly the same. It's a tailorable formation, but the basic concept, yes. All domains, yes. Persistent, yes. And what happens when you leverage the multi-domain task force properly, you create an internal A2, AD uh, in theater within the first island chain in the Pacific, as an, ex- as an example, which enables the uh, air and maritime assets to get in the fight. And you can do things like just think of, for example, leverage our strengths. We have an incredible strength maritime-wise in deep water uh, and incredible, you know, against anybody in the world. Uh, so other for- uh, forces will try to uh, hug the littorals, hug the shoreline, avoid the deep water. Well, if the multi-domain task force is designed right, it can keep them off that area and push them into our engagement area in the deep water where we have an advantage. That, so again, I say it's a joint fight. It's a key capability. I would also tell you that as you look to the future, we're at a really interesting time right now. Much like when I was a young lieutenant and captain, we were moving towards air-land battle. Uh, still in the Cold War, uh, early 80s. And that would lead us to success in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and we've used it ever since. Incredibly successful uh, airland battle. And it was, uh, it, yes, it was the big five equipment, but it was also a mindset change, uh, change in education, change in training. The combat training centers developed, uh, training methods, battalion training management system, NCO changes, and, and it was so, and TRADOC lit a lot of that. And we're seeing that now. Uh, multi-domain operations is the future. I'm positive. And formations like the multi-domain task force will become more, more will develop like it, smaller, maneuverable, with incredible capabilities. I'm not saying you won't need large combat forces. Of course, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, we, we uh, have that type of war and we need them. Of course you do. And having them is a deterrent as well. But these smaller formations that are maneuverable can get effects to the enemy, uh, you know, uh, in a, in a consistent, persistent way, are the future and multi-domain task force. Perfect example of that. I'm positive. You look at, for example, Sweden, Finland come in NATO. Now you've got the challenge of the Baltic Sea, and a multi-domain task force would be very nice for that. Uh, you know, to again from land to sea to assist there, but also on the plains of Europe against, say, Russia's A two A D threat. And again, I think what's uh, you know when you look at the the terrible, tragic uh, you know invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but you know following what's going on there and just the uh, you know the way the Russians are fighting in no way, shape, or form is it the future. It's it's, it's more akin to World War One and you know what they're doing, but. What it is reinforcing when you look at the lessons where the Ukrainians are having success and where we would also, when you look at multi-domain operations, uh, would, uh, would would really severely uh, hurt the Russians and, and defeat them uh, quite 
you know, quite uh, well. What we're working on, our priorities, our modernization priorities and our doctrine is spot on. Uh, it still needs a lot of work, but it's spot on. And MDTF is a great example of that. Sir, absolutely agree. And I think one of the things that we found interesting, a uh, great analogy with MDTFs is uh, when you think about the A2AD, especially that put forth by China, as you said, to keep us, if you think about it as a boxing match, um, they're looking for that longer reach to keep us away because uh, when it comes to the close fight and um, you know coming into contact with U.S. ground forces and really across um, across the domains, uh, they see the overmatch that we'll have in that close combat, and they don't want to get into that fight. Um, but I see MDTFs really as a capability to essentially throw those defenses down, uh, throw those hands down, uh, so that we can then start to work on the inside. And that kind of segues to a question. You, you answered it somewhat already, um, but really curious about what you see as a relationship between MDTFs, which are going to be smaller, more agile, um, and as you said, customizable, depending on the theater and, and what you're trying to do. Um, but they're going to be small compared to massive formations uh, and introduction of mass. So how do you see the relationship with MDTFs and mass? Because I think we've seen as well, uh, as you noted, in, in Russia, Ukraine, we've seen that mass still matters in a lot of senses as well. Yeah, I would almost look at it as the old cavalry scouts uh, in the relationship of the eyes and ears, the reconnaissance, and uh, formations like the MDTF uh, are in all domains uh, working together, and like, like the title of this, using convergence, so key, uh, leveraging speed of decisions and, and platform agnostic and system agnostic. You're going to get what you can from any platform of what, you know, what information it gives you, and then leveraging uh, AI and machine learning, be able to have effects that you get out there, both lethal and non-lethal effects, by the way. And I think the non-lethal has probably the greatest potential uh, in cyber and in space. And uh, But uh, so that if you look at there, the eyes and ears out there, the persistent uh, – formation that's out there that in competition again is finding openings for later and would be essentially the ones that would be absolutely key god forbid if you got in a conflict of that size that could bring in those forces in an area uh, and provide that valuable uh, a2ad bubble that protects them forward they, they're there they understand it so it's a it's a, it's a key relationship and uh, and it would apply again anywhere it's interesting that at first folks were like well what is what does this actually do and now every combatant commander wants three or four of them. <laughs> I find it very interesting from, gee, what does it do to uh, they can't get enough of it? And understandable. And uh, I think if you look at just about any scenario, we have real challenges with scenarios with Taiwan, for example. It's in the news a lot. Is you know, China going to invade Taiwan? I think for certain at some point, I know that, it, you know, I mean, President Xi has said he will get Taiwan one way or the other. Now, how they do it, uh, if they do it uh, – by uh, by force, things like the multi-domain task force caused them major challenges that, that we didn't have before. We, we were kind of late. It uh, be very difficult to respond, and, and their A2AD was a challenge to respond. Uh, but things like the MDTF uh, really uh, help us in that in that area and deter them is, would be the ultimate uh, goal that you could have. So I think that's how it's a, it's a, uh, a mutually supporting relationship, but I would almost view it as kind of the modern cavalry scouts out there and reconnaissance that's out there for you that you need today because we didn't have this A2AD threat. 
if you look, like Desert Shield, Desert Storm, we built up, brought all kinds of forces in. You're not going to be able to do that anymore. Uh, and, and you're going to be contested everywhere, even in your, in your own country, at your own ports, at your own bases, logistics, everything. A contested environment, for sure. Yeah, sir, that's a great point. And in one of your previous answers, you, you brought up competition, crisis, and conflict. You've talked about that previously and about the challenges involved in engaging in competition, crisis, and conflict, specifically in the Indo-PACOM AOR, which spans 36 countries, 16 time zones, and has half the world's population in it. So how can the U.S. Army meet that challenge, and what opportunities exist there to gain advantage and potentially even overmatch in some key areas? Well, I go back to a great question. I go back to land matters, and of those 36 countries you mentioned, um, you know, a lot of them don't even have an Air Force or a Navy. They all have armies or security land. You know, some of the smaller, Fiji, for example, has a land, you know, police-type force. But they all have land forces. And one of our biggest advantages in the world, and certainly in the Indo-Pacific is key, are our allies and partners. Thank goodness, you know, folks like Russia has very few <laughs> and China, very few allies and partners. We have a lot, and it's key. Absolutely key when you look at those alliances and partnerships. So exercising together in events, again, joint events, absolutely key, joint exercises, because that's how we're going to fight and practicing that all domain I talked about. Uh, and it's interesting that one thing I learned when I was out there, first, some of our allies and partners that maybe they couldn't do all that we could do in multi-domain operations. Uh, that's okay. You know, you know, a country, say, like Indonesia has Apaches. Uh, U.S. Apache helicopters. Apache helicopters can do a lot in the South China Sea, and they border the South China Sea. So you kind of have to look at what capabilities everybody has, how they can assist in that, and then you're practicing and leveraging. And we have a program started uh, about seven years ago now, Pacific Pathways. That is the best exercise program. Uh, Every country in the Indo-Pacific wants to do Pacific Pathways because it's tough, demanding, realistic training. Uh, with, you know, together, allies and partners, uh, where you, you really uh, get to a level you can't anywhere else. And I say every country, every country except China and North Korea. <laughs> Everybody else wants a pathways, I guarantee you. And uh, they're really happy about that. And that's the type of thing you have to do. And now, I, again, it's a joint fight. So I want, I want the best Air Force, the best Navy, the Marines, the Marines, what, the way they're structured now uh, and working towards these platoon size elements that will go out. Uh, some folks have said that's like the multi-domain task force, not, not even close. It's, it's a platoon. I like what they're doing. They're, they're uh, going to be able to you know, go from the maritime environment to the land and cause a lot of problems all over the place. But it's really uh, you know, not a multi-domain formation and certainly nothing like the multi-domain task force that has all the domains and really can leverage incredible assets like long-range precision fires, the intelligence, uh, AI, machine learning, the uh, air, ground, you know, on and on and on. So, But they complement each other very well. And so uh, I think that's absolutely key when you look at allies and partners, land matters, but it's a joint fight, so we got to train the way. And if we do it right, nobody would be foolish enough to be that aggressive against us. And I think, as, you know, when you look at what's happening in Russia, that must give pause to those out there that think these authoritarian regimes, that think they can just walk over anybody else. Thank goodness uh, allies and partners have come to the aid of Ukraine and helping them uh, because uh, it's just absolutely horrible, the brutal uh, authoritarian uh, regime, that what they're doing, and they think, you know, that they can uh, go after a sovereign country like that and, and lie about it and everything. I think it's one thing also that surprised me 
just kind of a follow-on. You know, I think years ago I thought, and as we moved into the information age and going from not enough information was a fog of war to over the last 20 years we've seen too much information is now the fog of war. I always thought the downfall of a North Korea, a China, a Russia would be people having access to the Internet and seeing the truth, that they couldn't lie. But it's been amazing to watch how they can control their population, China in particular. You know, you can't Google democracy over there. You can't. They just control the Internet, control the people uh, in an unbelievable manner. It's their biggest fear in China is, is control of the uh, of the population, and they certainly have it. They've you know, scanned everybody's faces. They, it's unbelievable. Uh, when you look at that, I, that surprised me. I didn't think they could control them. I thought the Internet would break through and people would really be able to see the truth. But now you almost have a which version of the truth or which perception is it. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely, sir. I think there was a lot of look at um, the, you know, you really saw the fall of the Soviet Union and then the emergence of uh, the Internet and, and all this information technology. And we, uh, I say we, in a, in a very global consensus, there was a thought that it would expand to yeah. democracies, that freedom would spread and freedom of ideas and this marketplace of ideas. Uh, and really what we've seen is exactly what you said of a capability for those um, to actually not only control that information and filter what gets their people, but then turn around and weaponize mm-hmm. it in a yeah. way that um, not only expands control within their own nation, but trying to spread that digital authoritarianism uh, yeah, around. exactly right. Exactly right. And you have to deal with it, you know, as they try to taint our, our reality and uh, our, our truth. Exactly. Great Ab- point. Absolutely, sir. And getting back to people as well, uh, sir, in addition to really leading soldiers for decades, you were also the commander for uh, the Combined Arms Center, CAC, a, a part of TRADOC. And in that role, you focused heavily on the human dimension. And can you explain to our audience what the crux of the human dimension is and why does it matter in competition, crisis, and conflict? Uh, thanks. I'm glad you brought that up. I was really proud. We, we actually wrote the human dimension strategy for the Army. We saw, you know, early on as conflict was changing, uh, General uh, McChrystal had a great saying early on in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Said, you know, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. There's, you know, it's things have changed and overwhelming amounts of info. The enemy, you've got to be. And, and uh, really, as we looked at the future in the human dimension, people are our advantage. People are our advantage, no question about it. Really, that that was that was spot on from General McChrystal. I thought early on in the conflict, but as you look in the future, that's not good enough because there's others who are not only comfortable; they're they're doing more in this new environment. So really, it came down to we analyzed, you know, what type of soldier leader do we need in the human dimension? We need someone who thrives in ambiguity and chaos, and that's a different way to educate, to train. Uh, it's it's not the same old way in the schoolhouse and the, in training and, and things like uh, TRADOC G2, for example, developed the decisive action training environment. Brilliant. Leveraging real-world data, making complex scenarios that you can train with allies and partners. So you're really pushing people, and it's hard. You know, it's hard to get a realistic train, but but TRADOC's uh, development of that, for example, and, and things like mad scientists, pushing areas. What can we do? What These are key, and because people are our advantage, and for us, it's, it's people that are empowered. They must be empowered. And what's a challenge today, candidly, I see since, you know, retiring, I can comment on a little bit more. When I was serving and we were deployed 
leaders were very empowered. I felt extremely empowered in, in combat as a striker brigade commander, as a deputy commanding general of a division. I was incredibly empowered. I didn't get second-guessed. Uh, and that was key because our soldiers came up with incredible ideas. The best ideas come from the cutting edge, uh, not from the generals, but from the cutting edge because they're the ones closest. Uh, they're in harm's way. They don't come up with the idea that they, they could die, you know. And, and so it's an incredible motivator. And they come up with these innovative ideas, incredibly innovative, most innovative people in the world because their lives depend on it. Uh, but when we came back from deployment, uh, it was tougher to empower. And we're seeing that now. It's the number one complaint I hear that back in garrison and you know non-deployed, they need to train and practice being empowered because that's our advantage. But they're a little bit feel a little bit sometimes overly managed, micromanaged, if you will, in some of these other areas. So that's a challenge. How do you get that? And I understand, you know, an empowerment is not a free for all. Do what you want. You get a left and right limit. You know your leaders who can be empowered more than others. Uh, and you understand, folks, and uh, certainly there's a commander's intent they must follow in the order, but, but they're empowered within that. So the human dimension got at that, and how do we develop that, educate that? How do we train uh, those folks? How do we develop those leaders that can thrive in ambiguity and chaos? We got away from it a little bit, uh, you know, over the past few, but we're, we're back there. You know, the current chief of staff, General McConville, people first and uh, people matter and uh, and so there's a whole bunch going on and it gets gets to a whole bunch of ways you can get at that even uh, goals and and uh, for soldiers and setting and looking at the individual uh, and how do you develop them as a person to get them to be the best they can be and thrive in those key situations and expect that ambiguity and chaos and then uh, excel. And, and, and that's going to be our advantage. And I think, again, going back to what we're seeing occur in Ukraine and Russia, uh, Ukrainians have that advantage of people. You know, and how do you measure that, that will to win, that fighting for their country, making them much more innovative, much more motivated, much more good? They're thriving in ambiguity and chaos uh, despite smaller numbers and challenges and equipment and everything else. Uh, so I think it's a good example of what you see of what we're getting at with the human dimension. And, and by the way, you have I always thought it should be a domain, the most important domain. But a lot of folks argue, no, 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 domain has to be something you can see, you can touch, you can feel. Although I would argue cyber, you can't really see it, you can't really touch, you can't really feel it. But so what they did, you know, you have the, the domains, air, land, sea, space, cyber. And they made it a dimension, human dimension, uh, information dimension, and physical dimension, all in that. So I'm okay with that, that, that you know, don't leave the human dimension out. It's got to be in there. Whether it's a domain or it's a dimension, it's, in my opinion, the most important part of the future fight. Yeah, I agree 100%, sir. And it, actually, in uh, General McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, he yeah. talks about, um, it, you made a great point about empowerment. Um, and what he noted was you can't just take a random formation or unit and just empower people at that level, you have to build trust and right. rapport right. Um, and really build into that. Right. And I think that's on the early end that you've talked about with the human yeah. dimension and training and how we get folks involved in that. Uh, and the reason that he brought it about was because there was too many targets to service uh, to do kind of uh, for, to not be too pejorative, but uh, not the Vietnam uh, Huey general yeah. 
leadership yeah. of yeah. directing the battlefield from there. Right. Uh, he couldn't possibly, as JSOC commander or any of the positions he was in, service all those targets and approve every single thing. And so mm-hmm. had to go, had to build that trust. And now I think we're facing a, a more exponential threat mm-hmm. when it comes to servicing targets no and doubt. need of semi-independence, autonomy, and everything else. So it's critical. E- excellent point, sir. It's one of the reasons I uh, brought my enduring leadership principles. Trust is number one on there because you're absolutely right. You cannot empower if you can't trust. And trust is tough. And I, I found a lot of units assumed they were building trust. They didn't uh, really uh, go after it and try to really build trust on a daily basis. And you have to. You've got to build it day by day. Takes time. The challenge of it, though, is you can lose it in a nanosecond. You know, so you got to build that trust and really look at, at how you, because you cannot empower without it, as you said. You'll never get to that advantage of our people if you don't have the trust, no doubt. Yeah, sir, and that idea of the will to fight and measuring the will to fight, that's something that yeah. we're looking at, um, we're trying to look at a lot more deeply here in Mad Scientist and the Trade-Out G2 because we're seeing it play out in real time, uh, that sort of David versus Goliath yeah. matchup right yeah. now in Ukraine-Russia, and we're seeing it work. And so getting to the bottom of that, identifying the characteristics of, of how they got to that point is very important. And then this next question is sort of along those same lines. So in all your work on leadership, training, and education, have you found that resilience is built or is it inherent in certain people? And if it can be built, does that scale beyond individuals to groups, units, and, and formations? I am positive it's built. And it's built over time, and it can be built for units. I've been in units that have had... Uh, you know, bad things happen. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to good units. It's all how you respond to that failure, if you will. And it's a challenge today because when I was young, you know, I used to say, uh, do something, do anything, lieutenant, you know, take the initiative. It was a lot easier because you only had a few pieces of information. You know, it was back when the fog of war was a few pieces of information. And nobody was going to second guess you. All right, you did the best you could. You had a few pieces of info, good initiative. Well, now you look at it, young folks taking the initiative, they will be second guessed left and right. We had all this info, you know, and uh, like they had weeks to look at it. I mean, people are second guessed in all kinds of split second decisions today. And you almost think it's like they had months to look at it and figure sometimes they have literally seconds. And and so, and then if you think about it, failure used to be able to isolate you know, family and friends. Now when you fail, it goes everywhere. And sadly, uh, human nature. I guess it makes some people feel good about themselves when they spread. Oh, look at what happened to Brown. Oh, he screwed this up. And, you know, and it spreads everywhere. It's on social media. It's here. It's there. So it's hard. So I can see why this generation is definitely afraid of failure. And I can see why. I'm not I'm not saying that's wrong from them. But failure is critical to success. And I would say failure is a key part of resilience. You You must fail and work through it and fight through it. And then you become more resilient and you build that in the unit, in the individual. And one of the things that I've seen that helps the most is uh, goals for individuals, uh, personal goals that, you know, because you can, you can have a, a goal and you're on a path and you get thrown off the path by failure. You very quickly can get back on keeping that goal and that focus in mind. And for units, it's that focus, the vision for the unit. That's sort of the unit goal. And every unit, from squad to, you know, the entire army, they want that. What is my purpose? What is the focus? What is the vision? And that helps them when there's a setback. And 
And again, if so, you know, looking at Ukraine, I think you see that resilience built. There's some failures they've had, some tough ones, and terrible, tragic loss of life and terrible things happening. But it's building a resilience in them. You can see it. They're going to they're gonna get their freedom, no matter how long it takes. They are not going to, no matter what happens, uh, they're going to be successful eventually. It may, you know, whether it's, I hope it's sooner, not later, but, but it's going to happen because that resilience they have built and it's that failure. So I think it's absolutely key for individuals, for formations. One other point I'll make in it, is there's a lot of research on this, and I've really worked it over, over the years, and uh, goals is one of the things. We used to know goals work, but we couldn't prove how. Now the research, you can actually show when you have a goal what portion of the brain lights up and prove how goals help focus. But the other research is that if an individual and an organization and an individual has a foundation, and it, in a lot of cases it can be a spiritual foundation. It doesn't have to be religion. Someone's spiritual foundation can be mindfulness. It can be yoga. It could be running. It could be religion. It provides a foundation. They are much more likely, I think it's 80% uh, less likely to uh, cause harm to themselves. They're, they're uh, going to succeed and have that resilience if they have the foundation because it gives them a, you know, build your house on a rock, not on sand that washes away, a foundation that's there. So that's a key thing. And it has been lacking. A little bit of a foundation is lacking across our whole society that used to be there more. I'm sounding like an old, old guy now, but it was there years ago, more different foundations. You know, it's not all, like I said, not all spiritual. But that foundation was there before, and I think it's key to get back to that, uh, establish a foundation, and then not be as afraid of failure and learn from it, and you will grow and become more resilient. And you're going to fail. I, I remember I would I would speak to groups, uh, like say go out with basic training when I was commanding different uh, you know, brand new soldiers, and they'd all think, oh nothing ever went wrong. You're a general, you know, you had everything go perfect your whole life. And the reality is, I would tell them about, you know. Numerous times I was almost relieved and failures I had. And they were shocked, you know. And it's like, but no, that's, you know, if you're, the only way you, you don't fail or build that resilience is if you're not doing anything. You know, so if you're out there doing stuff, you're going to fail. No, I think that's a really important point, sir, because um, we've seen that actually sharing those failures with organizations builds what we talked about previously in terms of trust um, and also helps to build that resilience and one of my one of my favorite speakers, Eric Thomas, says just because you fail doesn't make you a failure. Yeah, and we can look historically at the U.S. both uh, military leaders and the military itself, and we look at you know failures early in World War II yeah. of yeah. Um, in Operation Torch and across right. Uh, right. North, campaigning in North Africa had to learn from that. And you wonder would would folks like Patton, Eisenhower. Bradley would they would they survive today after those those failures taught them a lot and led to victory I don't know if they'd survive today and probably the greatest example of failures Abraham Lincoln and yet we think of him as our greatest president and look at the failures he had before he was elected president and all those taught him and built a resilience as unbelievable he's an amazing leader uh, but he had to learn that you know the, the tough way yeah absolutely sir I don't think uh, Admiral Halsey or, yeah. or General yeah. Patton or many of them would have survived because of those early failures yeah. in our kind of no fail mentality sometimes and in reality it's 
can you fail and, as you said, build that resilience? Um, and there are probably critical situations where you can't afford to fail. Yeah, at exactly. All. Um, exactly. But you have to recognize that. I think. Right. Uh, absolutely. I used to joke when I was at uh, Pacific Command uh, headquarters, uh, the combatant command, uh, that it's the MacArthur uh, Nimitz Center, and it would be the MacArthur Center uh, if it was today, because Nimitz ran a ship aground and was sent to these things called Iron Pigs submarines. But he recovered and he learned and he was a brilliant leader in World War II. But today he wouldn't have made, he would have been relieved, you know. So it's interesting when you look at it. And I think, sir, it's stories like that and like you talking to the younger soldiers about how you got to where you are that I think are incredibly powerful because younger soldiers, even younger civilians, when they look at the senior leaders, like you said, they, they have this kind of idea that they're perfect. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, their ascension to the top was flawless. And really, it's not. So they're thinking in their heads, I can't, I can't yeah. fail at this because then I won't get to where exactly. I want to be. Exactly. But failure is a tool in our toolkit. Mm-hmm. It has to be. So I think it's incredibly important to share those things with the younger generation to let them know that it's okay to do this as long as you do it the right way and learn yeah. from it and build from it. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, honestly, we could just talk to you for hours. I think this is all fascinating. Um, and we're really trying to figure out this problem. And uh, I believe that this is going to be the fight of uh, for Matt and I's generation, especially um, yeah. the, the fight of our lives when it comes to the competition and and hopefully not, but cr- possible crisis and conflict with China in the future. Yeah. Um, so, sir, we're going to pivot to our rapid fire questions. These Sounds are questions. good. I'll try to make it a rapid answer. <laughs> Take your time, though. We, uh, we like to ask all of our guestees uh, so our audience can get a better uh, sense of who they are. So uh, the first question we like to ask is, what trend or technology keeps you up at night? Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, not because of the way the United States will use it, but the way uh, uh, those other, some other nations out there that, that uh, don't have the same ethical standards, moral standards that we do. It makes me very nervous that you know, we would never do something that would, we'd implant in a soldier, for example, and modify their behavior. But I think there's others that would. And that, that keeps me up. I, I think it's a tremendous tool, and we have to leverage it uh, to be successful in future operations, to in- increase the speed of decisions and many other, uh, uh, many other things that will be key, but I worry about how others will use it and uh, uh, who, who knows what they're going to do. If you look at, you know, uh, I often thought I knew what evil was until I was in combat and I saw uh, some folks that, that just were, you know, did things that a normal human being would never even conceive and even think of, just evil. So there's some evil people out there, unfortunately. How are they going to use that AI and machine learning? And that makes me very nervous. Yeah, and, and with the advancements in chat GPT and, and Dolly in terms of, of the written word and, and some of the visual artwork, I think there's even a concern at the societal level now to the yeah. point where you have um, – uh, you know, concerns about academics. You have concerns about once they start to be able to produce commercial art, television shows, scripts right. like that. Right. You know, what what effect does that have on society and, and employment and and uh, commercialization? And uh, it, there's there's you know a number of of different outcomes from that. But it's becoming more and more concerning day by day as as they get more and more sophisticated. Right, no doubt. And uh, and it's it's kind of scary of of how they will use the you know. So I I do agree with the folks out there that say there ought to be some standards, not necessarily that these people will follow it, but at least a guide and some standards you could say that, you know, most nations uh, should follow and others. And But but right now it's kind of, um, you know, do, do what you want and see what advantage that gives you. And as you mentioned, as we were talking, you know, the 
the potential of the internet in, in was just so great, and we thought it would spread these good ideas, and it has, you know, done a lot to spread good ideas. But unfortunately, there's people that have used it for for uh, their own advantage to steal, to to swindle, to you know, on and on and on. And uh, you just don't think of that when you're developing. You think, wow, it's going to be such a great thing. It's going to help society, uh, but also, as you said, you know, it, it's caused many issues as well. And I think artificial intelligence, machine learning, will be very similar. Some amazing things it'll do and then some challenges it'll bring for those who don't have the same uh, standards ethical moral standards that we do as a nation exactly sir and we've talked out in the podcast before too i think even as recently as our most recent episode about that asymmetry of ethics um and and our adversaries seeing things as more of what they would consider a collective good rather than individual individual liberties and things like that 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 we think of in in the american sense and um it's really interesting when you look at that uh as you compared you know the outset of the internet really um you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube yeah uh you yeah. can't just put pandora's box back in yeah, great um point. Yeah. and and yeah. so it gets out there yeah. uh so sir on a on a lighter note what is something about you uh that you're willing to share on air <laughs> that most people might not know well i'll go back to the uh uh, numerous times, I'm saying probably about 12 times in 38 years, I was nearly relieved. Uh, career ended. Starting, I remember I was a first lieutenant and uh, a company commander I had, a Vietnam vet. I, I learned a ton from him. It was wonderful. But he basically indirectly told me to fudge some maintenance records. We were having a big inspection. I remember going home and telling my wife, Patty, uh, uh, you know, hey, it's been a great career, uh, you know, a couple of years here, but this is going to be it because I'm going to go tell them that next day I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, you only have one, your character, I'm not going to do it. And I went back in and I told him, and to my surprise, he respected me more for it, and it, it worked out. You know, obviously I didn't, didn't get relieved. But uh, over, the, over time then I had units again that had some bad things happen. I stood up in front of the division commander and said, relieve me, not captain so-and-so uh, for what was done, and that sounded at the time, it's like, it's the right thing to do. I, I'm going to do it. It sounded easy, but man, I love what I was doing. I've only been in command a couple of weeks and I thought, I waited 16 years to do this and it could be gone tomorrow. And it, it, uh, it affects, it's, it's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So, but that happened numerous times and I would do the same thing, even if I had been relieved, uh, because it's the right thing to do and you got to be able to look yourself in the mirror. But I think that's something we talked a little bit about it earlier, but I think uh, most folks would say, oh, well, you made four-star general. Nothing ever went wrong in your career. Everything was great. Uh, piece of cake. And uh, just, just the opposite, you know, uh, you learn from failure. It made me a better leader. Every time I um, failed and, and learned from it and responded, it made the unit better. It made me better as a leader. Helped me to have better empathy for those uh, you know, for example, when, when someone would have something go wrong, the lawyers, you know, and you're in command at any level, the lawyers sometimes tell you, oh, you can't go talk to him. You know, you might say something just, you know, no, and it's totally wrong. It doesn't matter. You go to that person, that unit, when something goes wrong. You've got to be there as a leader in the toughest times. You get there and you're there. And I think, uh, you know, I learned that and, and it made me a better leader. But it wasn't easy. And uh, I, I would, again, even if I had been relieved, I'd do it again in a heartbeat because it was the right thing to do. So I don't think uh, a lot of people knew about that. <laughs> yeah, I think Luke and I are um, accumulating the number of stories where we've gone back to our desks and thought about writing our resignation letter yeah. <laughs> because of things that have happened. I think that, that's growing, but yeah. we're learning from it every time. And yeah. I think, you know, whenever, for me, at least personally, whenever something like that happens, 
you can't take it back, but my right. next step is, okay, how am I going to show them how I'm going to fix this exactly. or do the right thing? And how do you respond? You know, the, the big thing is how you respond. You can have your little, something goes wrong, you have your little poo-poo party behind closed doors. You can't ever let, you know, the organization see you got to, and, and that's where it helps to have that resilience and someone to talk to and a foundation, the goals to bring you back and, and uh, keep that focus. And then it will make the organization better if you do it right. And that's an important thing. One one. One time was before deployment, we had something go wrong in the unit as a battalion commander, and it, it made us, the deployment, incredibly successful and saved lives, I'm certain of it, uh, because it just got everybody's attention and made us a better better unit. Now, I think it's such a great point, sir, because I can look back at my career, and I know a lot of others can, and it's not looking back at the moments where you go, that was awesome, and everything yeah. went great. It's looking back at those troubled times when you got challenged, um, and it might have been, as you noted in your case, you know those morally, ethically challenged moments where you have to step up. Um, you know, as as Ted Lasso says, uh, doing the right thing is never the wrong thing. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I'm waiting it, for the new episode, isn't it? Like today, uh, or I just just watched it last night. Oh, good! I got to watch it. It's, it's a great leadership show. Uh, I would absolutely, say. It really and, is. And actually, fascinating. Um, to your point about empathy, uh, yeah. you know, as I always say, one of the most intel- emotionally intelligent shows I've ever watched. Yeah. And I think a, a, an underrated characteristic in leadership is is that empathy. And I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up, yeah, sir. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and so our uh, final question, and it's often said to be our hardest question, what is your favorite movie? Well, it's a movie uh, I saw a long time ago that really impacted my life. It's called Brian's Song. And the whole idea from it, uh, I Am Third, uh, and it's a story about uh, Brian Piccolo, so Brian's song. Uh, and it goes way back to Gale Sayers and the Chicago Bears. So I saw this in high school. had an incredible impact on me. And Brian Piccolo got cancer. It's a, it's a tough story. And, and uh, he was good friends with Gale Sayers. And, uh, but to me, just the movie, it's the I Am Third is, you know, the Lord is first, my friends are second, and I Am Third. It impacted me so much. I had that on a, I wore that on a, on a dog tag I had. I, uh, it, it just uh, uh, really impacted me and, uh, and uh, was, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, uh, it's nowhere near Academy Award, didn't win any Oscars, nobody even probably heard of it. But when I look at a movie that impacted me, you know, it was it was uh, pretty powerful. So that I choose that. Uh, and uh, although, you know, I'm sure by, there's a million movies out there and some great ones. It's amazing. But that's the one that had the biggest impact on my life. So. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we're, we're starting to see more and more of our guests come out with movies that impacted them in a certain way. Not not ones you would normally think about being at the right. top of a, you know, a top right. 100 list or something, right. but the movie that meant the most to them. So right. I think this is this is probably the, the second one in a row, I think, actually, where somebody has said, you know, it's not, it's not the yeah. greatest movie in the world. It's one that, that hit me the hardest, though. However, I will say the great thing about movies, you know, it's a great movie when you're there and then it ends and you're like, oh, man, you're back in reality. You know, some great movies and Although not as many lately, I think um, you know, but uh, but a great movie is is hard to you know replay. That's that's pretty awesome when you're you're enjoying it so much and then uh, back to reality, kind of you know, <laughs> no doubt. Well, sir, again, we could have talked to you forever, and we're just really appreciative of you taking the time with us. Uh, where can folks follow you on social media or anywhere like that? Uh, AUSA dot org is uh, Association of United States Army website, and I I don't uh, do my own. That's kind of I guess I, I should be shot for that or something. You know? <laughs> it's like, but I use AUSA and post everything. And AUSA 
www.ncsa.org. Get on there and see all the stuff we have going on. Educate, uh, inform, and connect, and, and what it can do for you. There's a ton, and uh, and we're really excited. And then uh, again, it's it's really those uh, ten thousand volunteers out there in the chapters that are amazing, and they help soldiers every day and families. So uh, I would say that's the best place go and see what's going on in the army. See what's going on in ASA. How you can get involved and help, and if you're a soldier, what kind of help you can get. Fantastic, sir. We really appreciate it, and thanks for coming on today. Absolutely. It's been my honor. Thanks for what you guys are doing. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, General Robert Brown, U.S. Army retired. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience. 